You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Hello, this is Michael Webb. Some people focus on reaching decision makers and selling value. Other people focus on gathering data, analyzing cause and effect, and applying statistics. Here, we focus on both to create wealth for customers, for our own companies, and ourselves. My name is Michael Webb. This is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. And I'm really excited today. My guest is a longtime friend of mine and a marketing genius. His name is Burke McCarthy. Burke, welcome here. <laughs> You're too kind, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so can you, uh, for my audience, can you uh, give them a, like a 30 or 45 seconds of what your background is? Well, um, I was uh, with Kodak, Eastman Kodak, for 17 years. And uh, I was a technical sales rep based in Manhattan for about eight of those years. And uh, one of the key things I did as part of my job function to justify the fact that our chemical prices were higher, you know, we would work with professional labs on the E6 process. And um, we would basically run control strips and plot their process and how it was trending. You know, there were three dyes that we would track. Uh, we would run control strips through the process. We'd measure dye densities. We would plot it onto a control chart. Action parameters told us when we had to do something to get the process back on track. Control parameters, if exceeded, meant don't you dare run any film. Mm. So that's where I developed uh, an ability to look at process and systems uh, and, and how to apply that to create customer value. And I've done it many times. Well, so you got to see it operating in the service that you were actually providing to the customers, right? Absolutely. And then, but, but you're an unusual fellow because you've transferred it not just in sales, of course, but also in marketing. And yeah. that is a real nebulous. I mean, I used to work in a company, a small company, and my uh, one of my uh, directors of engineering said, "Yeah, marketing is a black hole you pour money in." Yeah. Well, <laughs> I can tell you that it's um, I've been a career struggle to deal with companies that don't understand it, and I really don't want to get too involved in that. It's just that you know people. They don't know what they don't know about marketing. And uh, let's just leave it at that because that's not the focus of what we're talking about right now. But it, it's going to cost them a lot of money, okay? Yeah. And it's not that hard to gather data to inform your, especially your strategic decisions because it makes no sense uh, to do the wrong things correctly. What you need to do is, is focus on what, how you deliver value to customers right? what they value when they make a purchasing decision. Which brings up one of the um, basic <laughs> tools, I guess. I've learned so much from you about marketing and the tools that are used, but one in particular that you told me about uh, and I use with almost every client, and I know you do too, um, is a tool um, called the Market Perceived Quality Profile, right. and it's in uh, it's in my book, Sales Process Excellence, in the appendix. Right. Right. Um, but can you tell us uh, where that came from? It came from a book called Managing Customer Value, written by Brad Gale, back when 
people were vying, meet, meet corporations rather, were vying for the Malcolm Baldridge Award. Okay? Yeah, okay. So that's how, it's from the 80s. Yeah. But what was cool about it is, you know, they showed an example for uh, using Frank Perdue. Now, not everybody knows this exact, who he was, but people on the East Coast certainly do. But uh, basically, he looked at what the attributes people valued in in buying a uh, poultry from the supermarket. It was a price. It was totally a price game. I think sixty nine cents a pound for chicken and in availability, and that was it. it. Either was it was priced low and it was available. But Purdue turned it into a value market by understanding people wanted more meat on the bone. People wanted no pin feathers to deal with when they bought, a, you know, a fresh chicken from the supermarket. Uh, he actually even added marigold flower petals to the feed so that their skin would appear tan compared against. Now, anybody from a farm wouldn't buy it, but anybody who is not from a farm is going to choose that one. And he learned all these things. He applied it and he took what was a price driven market and he turned it into a quality market. Because. His product was differentiated according to the things he learned that his customers wanted. Yes. He went so, and actually asked them. He, he said, what are the things that are most important? We might call those attributes. And uh, the way I might do this even at a trade show, right, is you could ask, make sure it's the target, first of all, the people that you're really targeting. Don't, you know, ask the wrong people these questions. But Ask them how they ultimately make their decisions and leave price to the side because that you talk about that later. The main things are what are the most important things? And if I then if I took 100 uh, points and I asked you to assign those points to those attributes, you know, uh, let's say there's five attributes and maybe you assign 20 points to each one, but you might probably assign 30 to one of them. The point is then you look at you and then you look at your competitor. And you ask those people to assess on a scale of one to 10, how you rank on, you know, and then how your competitor ranks on delivering that attribute to the customer experience. And then you basically multiply across. The beauty of this is it affords you strategic navigation at a very low price. <laughs> you know, in other words, it tells you that if you have a fundamental weakness that as perceived by the market or your customers, this is what you should work on first to shore it up or improve it. And by the same token, if you have uh, some advantage and you're not properly exploiting it, then there's a missed opportunity. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's, let's step back here, and, and it is kind of a step by step sort of a process. There's a template. And I'll put that up on the blog post. We'll, we'll put it up there so people can uh, okay. download it and reference the book and, and where to find uh, the original uh, description um, of this. But so there's there's a template, and down the at the top you write in the, the the person you're talking to, like what type of company are there, what is their role in the company, right? And then now, you now, down yeah. At this point, I'm just going to do a quick sidebar and talk about Rich Chernovsky, who wrote a great book on positioning. I, I, it's really great advertising. Well, well, okay, but hang on a minute, because you're going to that uses the information you would gather That's in the market perceived quality profile. But I want to make sure that we've made it real simple that they understand what this okay. data is, because I have clients where salespeople are asking these questions. And on a weekly basis and gathering that information, it's incredibly valuable for them to be wanting to do that. So, so 
Step one, who are we talking to? You know, the role that they play, the type of company that they are in. And then step two, down the left-hand side, what are the attributes that you value about a supplier like us? And just list them out. Could be three things they put in there. Could be 10 things they put in. So now, when, I, when I worked with Cargill, for example, <clears throat> they already had Six Sigma people in place, right? Who, who basically ascertained that what the customer values and the order in which they value it is cold, clean, correct, and on time. And by developing their abilities to deliver these attributes to the guy who's in the back of the, you know, name a big uh, shopping store right now, let's call it Wegmans. Um, and, uh, you know, the guy who's buying from Wegmans, he wants it on Thursday, right in time for the weekend. He wants the order to be cold so it doesn't perish at all. He wants to be accurate. He doesn't want to have to call back and say that, you know, there's a problem with the order. You sent me three cheap chops. I only wanted two. That kind of thing. That same thing applies to McDonald's, right? When you want to order within a certain amount of time, you want clean food anywhere you go in the world. You want mm -hmm. the restaurant to be clean, mm -hmm. the food to be quality, excuse me, you know, warm. And, yep. and, and you have these expectations. It's when we see variants that you start to question the value of what you're uh, buying. Right. So let me ask you a question because I had a client run into this and we we had to figure out a way to deal with it. And I wonder if you've run into it before. Client was instructed to interview multiple customers. And the first instinct the client had was, and these were salespeople, right? Well, wait a minute. If I go talk to these customers, they're all going to say different things. So how are we going to make any sense out of that? I know. I'll make a list and put my words in there so that they can, you know, say, you know, they can tell me how important those things are to them. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, I didn't. You, you, you have to use their language. You have to be talking to And ultimately, that goes right to your communications and your messaging. Yeah. You know, if you're not using words they use, you're setting yourself up for trouble. So how do I you mean, deal uh, with the issue where the oh, client does use different words for the same thing? I mean, the, well, the end customer that you're interviewing. Well, the, one of the only things you can do is kind of educate the, the um, sales force um, and other people not to use certain words. Like Xerox, you know, had a raster imaging processor, you know, that they would go in, you know, between a photo and then reproducing it electrostatically. And, you know, it's called a RIP. The problem is they kept referring to that as the front end. And when you're targeting the photo industry, you don't call something that's halfway down their process the front end of the process. Ah. You know, you're basically walking right in and you're telling them, I know nothing about your business. <laughs> By implication, absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's how it can play out in the market. So when the client, um, they, they first use their own words. And they would have stuff like um, product line. And I asked them, well, so what does product line mean? Well, completeness, you know, completeness. Anything that they might want, we've got a product that'll suit it. And someone else raised their hand and said, well, but we have a different application, right? So was it application? Was it completeness of product line? Was it adequate for the purpose? What? They so, hadn't really defined their terms. So I made them go back and interview a bunch of customers and write down only what the customers said in uh, that 
column, right? And yeah. then get together and sort of reconcile what these customers were talking about in order to come up with a common language to interpret what the customers were saying, using the customer's words as much as possible. So have you had to do that too? Well, uh, you're reminding me of, uh, I worked with a guy who actually did the research with Toro Lawnmower when I was with Eastman Kodak. Mm -hmm. and, and he used language analysis. It was really fascinating to see how the more knowledgeable and involved someone was in a subject, how they used words that the next big cluster um, you know, used some of those words. And then the huge cluster of people that you know, took photos or used lawnmowers was, well, at any rate, what they found through their uh, language analysis was that people were so angry, meaning usually men, the target, men who had to go cut the lawn on Saturday morning when they'd rather be playing golf. And when the lawnmower wouldn't start, they would be enraged. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <And laughs> I've been there. <laughs> so they measured that and they realized, holy crap. So instead of putting their development funding into building a better uh, engine than Briggs and Stratton or a better cutting deck than Snapper, they simply improved the starting mechanism and then they used the rest of the money to tell the world about it. And the world voted to the tune of almost $1 billion in sales so quickly, it was absurd. Wow. Right. And these, are, these opportunities are out there, but you, you're not going to do it without at least some modicum of a marketing mindset within your organization. So when my client did this, they were selling into the building trades um, mm -hmm. and, you know, into construction projects uh, where they're building hospitals, and data centers, and, and stuff like that. Um, and what they quickly learned was that, well, wait a second, we have people who are building owners, and then we have contractors. Oh, and there's engineering firms. Um, oh, of course, there's architects, and then there's independent reps who sell to the contractors. So they have all these different channels. It's a complex market. And as they talked with these people, someone who is a building owner has a whole different set of things that were important to them than someone who worked in the maintenance department of that building. Or then the contractor who had to install this piece of equipment as, as a kind of HVAC equipment, right? And so they're realizing all these different parties to the sale, to the channel, have different value propositions. And the thing that struck them the most after looking over, it only took a couple of dozen of interviews. And the word technology was not used once by any one of these channel members. And my client salespeople had been taught from the day they started with the company that their products were better because they had much better technology. And the customers didn't care about it. That was a very sort of stunning realization that they've been trying to tell customers about something that the customers didn't care about. Well, there you go. A waste of breath. Right back to what I had said before. It makes no sense to do things right if you're not doing the right things. <laughs> yes, and you have to figure out what those right things are. Absolutely. And this, then by asking your customers open-ended kinds of questions, uh, you can do that. So, so you get the customer to fill out the first column with the things that they value. And then in the second column, you get them oh, to take oh, 100 I mean, points. You, know, like you, you just explained for a second in your example. You know, here you have architects and then you have builders. 
And, you know, and so what you're getting at is those are three different customer segments, so to speak. Yeah. Right? right. Right. And so when you look at those customer segments, each one of them is going to have a slightly different uh, way that they perceive value. Now, where the mistake often happens is when people don't realize who the customer really is. I worked, in fact, with a, another HVAC company, and it was a pretty fast-growing uh, uh, category of air conditioning, rooftop air conditioning systems, commercial. And uh, these the people who were doing the engineering thought that their customer was the next person down the line within their company. And sadly, they found out the fact that uh, they were unable to deliver systems to a site to a contractor uh, on, a, on a defined date and time that lost them incredible amounts of market share. Think about it. You're the contractor, right? I could use the competitor and know that it's going to be delivered on Thursday. If I use you, I have to basically hire people and have them ready, including the crane, for three days instead of one. Because right? you don't know exactly when it's going to arrive. I don't know if it's going to come a day before. I don't know if it's going to come a day after. But you see, that type of thing, which is actually a true example, uh, you saw an incredible decline in a growing category for this company versus their competitors who are all going in a positive uh, left to right direction. Right. right. So, so the, the idea of taking 100 points or pennies and distributing those across those attributes that the customer thinks are important. A contractor might say on time delivery, the time I need it, and I'm going to put 50, 50 points on there, 50 pounds on there, right? Right. 50%. Yeah. He's actually the customer, right? And, and right. just as a quick aside, I will say that even the people that developed the turbo prop and I'll, they will go nameless because they were a client too, but you know, they made this bet, uh, doing the turbo prop because it was, you know, used so much less fuel and the cabins were much more comfortable. But they didn't think in terms of, you know, your client is not the company, the airline. Your client are the people that are willing to squash themselves into faster regional jets because they just don't want to spend time on the airplane. Big mistake. Mm. Right? Think about yeah. the development funds that went into that. Yeah. And I've seen this so many times. I could write books about this, but I'd probably get sued. <laughs> so, well, so so you uh, identify the at, get the customer to tell you the attributes. You get the customer to, to weight them as importance or rank them, actually. Yeah. And then the third step is how do we compare? How, how do we, on a scale of one to ten, how good are your perception of us on each one of these things? Right. And then... Uh, to the uh, competitors. Now, when I was working with the clients, it was hard just to get the salespeople to start by gathering the attribute, that, you know, just the, the the characteristics that are important to us about a company like you. So I told them, just go do that, nothing else. And then the second round of interviews, once they had gathered that information, then they learned to probe and be precise about what they actually meant then the second round of interviews okay now do the same thing again but this time add the waiting and they did that and they learned a bunch from that mm -hmm. because as they did that they were able to sort through and see the different channels different customer segments and see how they not only did they value different things they weighted them differently 
And then the third step was to rank our company. So this is something that you can do incrementally. And as it has turned out, the salespeople learned from their own experience that they liked doing this. It gave them something new to talk about that was respectful to the customer, right? They were able to get new information and get the customer to tell them something new. And, you know, it was a good way to propel their relationship because they weren't feeling under the pressure of constantly trying to sell them and trying to make them do something that they didn't necessarily want to do. Well, well, sales is a great guy once told me, his name is Dave Ellis. (laughs) He once said that uh, sales is transactional and marketing is transformational. I always liked that line. It made a lot of sense. (laughs) Well, and it's transformational because it's identifying these foundational things, the basic direction that we need to go. And if you do it right, right, not only are you informing your product improvement decisions, right, or service improvement decisions, you are also improving the way you talk to the market, whether it's through your online communications, through your print advertising, and right down through your salespeople who are saying more relevant things to the person, you know, with the title, with the similar problem that, you know, they're interfacing with. Yes. No, so, no wasted uh, breath, right? It's yeah. all much more efficient, much more streamlined, and hopefully much more productive for these companies that would adopt this. So now there's another example you have that you told me about uh, where you use this, and it was in the uh, warehousing automation uh, industry. Can you tell that story, and then we'll wrap up? Sure. Um, it. Well, uh, I should quickly say I was I I'm probably the poster boy for companies that think uh, you have to have experience in the industry in order to do marketing, because I went into the automated material handling industry with absolutely no experience in that industry. But what I saw, I was quickly able to see that, uh, you know, like, you know, what the problems were, right? You you know, because of the uh, uh, experience I've had in other industries. And, you know, using, um, I would say the two things that, that probably were the most impact on the company, which ended up being bought by a French company, in fact, uh, because it was highly successful. Uh, one was the customer engagement process, and whereby I used ver- a lot of the tools that we're talking about, right, including MPQP. Uh, and I would also, uh, did something called positioning, which I referenced earlier, a book by Rich Chernosky. Mm-hmm. By doing those two things, I felt that totally transformed this company and put them on a track where they were predictably pulling in system sales. Uh, and we actually got a $20 million order right in the middle of the 2009 financial meltdown. Mm. So, so anybody doing strategy... I would recommend make sure you have a large private company <laughs> in your portfolio of customers that is not impacted by Wall Street. <laughs> Always a good thing to have. So give us a like 60-second explanation of how the MPQPs worked in that material handling company and then how you translated that into positioning. Uh, okay. Well, you know, first of all, um, you know, what uh, we've – Without having the document in front of me, I'm a bit. Of, well, first of all, we looked at the target. Who is this person? In most cases, it was a man, you know, in a certain age bracket, usually, you know, somewhere from 32 to 54 to 60, you know, with a title like uh, 
you know, chief operating officer, something like that. That's this is the person responsible for the automated yeah. warehouse. That's who we're talking to, right? Okay. Yeah, they they okay. run an automated warehouse, or actually, they run a warehouse, right? That could be at any one of three stages, right? Okay. What we realized that at the very least, they should have an automated shrink wrap palletizer for you know, that's probably the entry level where people can start to really consider automation. Uh, point is, is that um, you know by looking at that target understanding their needs and writing it down on paper, uh, understanding the benefits that we can give them, uh, understanding what category we're in and, you know, and, uh, the, um, you know, there, there are six elements ultimately, and one even included brand character, but by doing all of this, we basically had much more effective communication, much better sales results and in fact, uh, I will say with this one protein company, um, at one point, uh, I remember being pressured to move away from them and go towards retail, which in fact would have turned out to be a disaster. And I didn't do it based because of Maslow's hierarchy. People need food before they need fashion. Truly. And that's so I held my ground. We stayed with this company, even though we hadn't yet gotten a an indication that we we're going to have a whole string of, of projects from them. We had done one project for them. This was a, all, um, you said protein this is a meat packing company, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, so, so meat packing company has needs for um, material handling and you're, yeah. you're saying this is our market. Right. So, you know, what we did is we operationalized their strategic intent. So in other words, they're delivering cold, clean, correct, and on time to the customer experience better than their competitors so that when they went into um, negotiate with the, the buyer at any of the large, uh, um, you know, grocery retailers, mm -hmm. they had a better value to them. And they realized that this was valued by the person making the purchasing decisions. Mm -hmm. And they achieved the highest margins in the industry, which allowed them to start building more of these, you know, box handling systems across the United States. So you were able to position the value of your material handling against those strategic things that they were aligning their company around. Yeah, we, we literally integrated with them. You know, hey, I took a salesperson, I said, you know, who was brilliant, Tom Swovic, and, and basically, you know, share your data with us. We'll crunch it with you. We'll help you develop your PowerPoints for the next meeting when you make presentations. And... By the time the second big project rolled around, they realized that all sorts of the, you know, they had, all they made were uh, ROI assumptions based on cost reduction. And what they had not anticipated is how the ROI would escalate because of the value they delivered and the fact that people flocked to get it. Ah. It was, it was a real revelation. One of the greatest, you know, hit, hitting that... Uh, Hitting that project, getting that project uh, in the midst of that 20, 2008 uh, was really uh, an incredible experience. Because you made something that was uh, literally invisible. You made yeah. it visible because, and by defining the terms and defining what was valuable and then aligning to show that you're able to create those values and it translates to financial success. Big time. That's a great story. They ordered three more systems. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And so your company was growing in the midst of this recession, right? Yeah. And then, and so which led to the purchase, the acquisition by the European parent, yeah. and uh, yeah, so a bunch of happy uh, stories. It and, transformed uh, the company, and what I like about it is, you know, going back to when I was a technical sales rep in New York City, and I looked at process. There was something I I did an incredibly well. I shouldn't say I, you know, I don't like to do that. It was a team, but you know, we also, uh, you know, really stunted Fuji Chrome as well. But that's another story for another time. But um, but by looking at a systems approach and then continuing to apply it throughout my career, uh, I've just enjoyed a lot of success and a lot of variety. And it's what a great career I've enjoyed. <laughs> that's, really. quite, that's a super, you, you know, people call me, I don't have to promote. <laughs> I, I well, get calls. And I'm, and uh, you and I have worked together on projects and I'm looking forward to uh, doing that again and like I said, I've learned so much from you. And there's so many other topics and tools and things. I, I would love to uh, do another interview focused on a different tool at some point in the future if you're open to that. Great. Love to. Okay. So uh, when people listen to this, they may want to know how to get in touch with you or, or how to uh, reach out to you. How do they do that? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, my uh, contact information is right there. So. Just well, send so spell it out. Burke McCarthy, right? Yeah. You know, my e well, my e yes, B U R K E, it's an unusual name. McCarthy, M C capital C A R T H Y. And uh, okay. I'm based in Toronto. And yes. uh, go ahead. Good. So I will I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the okay. blog post. And I'll okay. also put a copy, a template of this market perceived quality profile yep. uh, from Bradley uh, Gales book and uh, yeah this will make a, make a nice little package and definitely anybody that uses this is going to get some eye-opening uh, results highly recommend so thank Wonderful. you Burke happy thank you very much and uh, we will be talking again soon thank you Mike the sales process excellence podcast is sponsored by sales performance consultants discover how to improve your b2b sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com